My message today is living water, and we're going to look at Jesus' promise of living water in John chapter 4. In the Bible, living water is opposed to uh, stored water or water that's not moving. In Bible times, if you had uh, running water, it would come from a stream, like a creek or a river or something of the like, a spring, or you would have stored water. Our, our running water comes from where, most often? The running water that you use comes from where? The faucet, the tap, right? That's running water, it's living water. If you store water, in ancient times, it would be in a cistern, which was a big, you know, dugout area of the ground that might have been, you know, stonework or it might have been natural clays that would have held it. Um, you could have had big stone jars or, uh, you know, the, the jars that they would put in the kiln or today bottled water or something like this that's not living water. And, of course, the well that this woman that we're going to talk about is pulling her water out of, it was not running water. It was not living water or leaping water. So in Africa today, there's a giant need uh, for wells to be dug. I'm not trying to go off on a tangent. I'm trying to illustrate how we take water for granted. But even in a well with a pump like this to provide clean water in, in Africa... Uh, the utility infrastructure that we have, which is so much better than this, delivers clean, drinkable water into our homes and businesses. It's something that we often take for granted, but 30% of the world's population lacks. Now, this woman here, uh, she's got clean water, which is she's not in that 30% that's lacking it, but she still has to transport it, doesn't she? But yet, we're not talking about clean potable or drinkable water that she has, uh, we have it right in our homes and our businesses, right? The World Health Organization says that about 2.1 billion people lack access to safe, readily available water. One of the major compassionate ministries of the Church of the Nazarene and other denominations is to provide wells like this in places that need it most, in Africa, in Asia, in South America. Africa needs it, India needs it uh, very badly. Uh, water's very important, and, and we come to this, and we talk about living water, but sometimes we kind of overlook just how important it is. We're going to read the scripture in just a moment, but I had the opportunity to travel to Tanzania in eastern Africa, uh, I guess it's been seven summers ago, and there was this man, and I'm trying to remember his name, but in Africa, among the Tanzanians, uh, they speak Swahili. They're very, very dark-complected, not just, you know, as, as many of our African-Americans in our nation, but they're very dark, okay? And you walk somewhere and you hold hands, and it's what they do. Men and women, like a husband and a wife, don't hold hands or a boyfriend-girlfriend out in public, but men do. You'll see two women walking along the road, and it's nothing weird. It's what they do in their culture in, in East Africa because they're friends, and the men will hold hands. So I'm walking with this guy. Uh, we're holding hands, and we're going out to the lake that he has dug on his property. And this is in the general area of the Serengeti uh, Wildlife Preserve that borders Kenya, but it's still like, you know, two hours from there, but it's a couple hours from Lake Victoria, okay, from the city of Mwanza. So we're out here. It's, it's very 
dry, very, um, they get seasonal rains once a year. And he spent years of his life digging out an actual physical reservoir that was about a kilometer long and not quite as wide so that he could capture the rainwater during the rainy seasons, which just floods everything, into this reservoir. And he did it by hand. And shovel, you know, he had like a shovel, but we're not talking, you go down to Ready Rents and rent a, you know, a backhoe or something, or, you know, contract with a, a developer to, to dig out things. They just don't have those resources that we have. And this is, you know, parts of Africa are developed in South Africa and, and in the north, you know, in, in Egypt, Cairo, and places like this. But a lot of the, the central part of Africa they just do not have access to the resources that we have. And so I'm looking at this reservoir and it's filled up and it's not the rainy season and he dug it deep enough and he spent, he spent years doing this. And also he would kind of channel the topography in the area around to capture just as much of the rainwater into his area. So what's he do with the water? It's not running water or living water, it's stored, but it's stored so that he could pump it into this tower, kind of a a big plastic container that you could buy from, from somewhere, you know, probably India or China, and it's up on wood beams so that you have water pressure and hose coming out so that he can grow avocado trees and banana trees and all these different types of fruits that grow wonderful in that climate, but he did it by hand. So we go to the scripture and we, we think about, you know, how, how, oh yeah, water, this, that, and the other. But water is essential to life, and I, I wanted to make that point, and what a need there is around the world for, uh, for wells like this to be dug. My predecessor at the previous church that I pastored, uh, he passed away now, and he was in his 70s when he pastored uh, the church up in Helena, Montana. His name was John Cook, but he started right after he finished the pastorate uh, up there, he started an organization called Compassion Tanzania. And what Compassion Tanzania does is they dig wells like this. I just pulled this picture off the internet. But they dig wells like this so that people can have access to clean, drinkable water. And behind the government of Tanzania and the United Nations, this small group of people who just want to see God change the world and realize that drinking water is a big need because if you have clean drinking water, your health is better. You can, you know, your kids aren't going to get sick. They're not going to have diarrhea all the time. You're, you're healthier, so you can fight off the malaria in Africa, things like this, right? Things that we take for granted. And so behind the UN and the government of Tanzania, this small little nonprofit in this backwoods, you know, place, as I might think of it, is the third largest provider, the third largest digger of wells in Tanzania because they made up their mind that they want to be part of what God's doing. So we can be part of it too through the Church of the Nazarene. Every time you give to our church, uh, a part of it, over 5%, goes to support uh, the overall mission endeavor of the Church of the Nazarene that includes digging wells. In other countries, the Church of the Nazarene's digging wells, doing water projects all around the world. So sorry for the little bit of a tangent there, but I want to bring up to you how big a need is water is in our life. You might not usually think about it unless you work at a water treatment facility or a, a bottling facility, 
but it was such a big deal in the Bible that uh, it would still be a big deal to us today if we didn't have the facilities, the utilities, the infrastructure that we have. And I'm just talking about cold water, let alone hot water. You can hop in the shower and say, thank you, Jesus, for the hot water that I have to clean my body. Thank you for the clean water that I have. Even if, it, if I think it tastes a little funny and I might want to either buy my water or filter it or whatever, thank you, Lord Jesus, for the gift of water that 2.1 billion people around the world don't have, not even to this ability of a woman to pump this, this water here. So Jesus equates living water to spiritual life that's sustained by the Spirit of God in the Bible. So let's join Jesus in John chapter 4. Jesus is going to take a seat at Jacob's well that had been providing water for 2,000 years. And it's still providing water today, this well near Sychar. It's, it's a 4,000-year-old well, and Jesus sits by it to meet a Samaritan woman. So I'm going to read to you verse 3 through 29 and verse 39 of John chapter 4. It's kind of a long passage. Let's go ahead and look at it together. In the English Standard Version, it reads like this. So Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee in the north. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, Kind of interesting note here. Jesus, in his humanity, got tired and wearied. Okay, the sixth hour, the Jews started counting their day from six in the morning. So the sixth hour is what time of the day? It's noon. And some of your Bibles just say noon. They do the the interpretive work for us. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It's lunchtime, right? The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In other words, running water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So at this point, she's probably a concrete, sequential thinker like me, where we, sometimes we come to the Bible and we take Jesus' words so literally that we forget that he himself was into metaphor. He himself was into painting visual pictures for people. Now, I'm not like that. I I want it all very mathematically, very much like an equation. Others of you are not concrete, sequential thinkers like that. You're more artistic, you're more uh, loose, you know, and that's good because Jesus is talking to you and he's challenging people like me. Uh, The woman says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now I want to pause here for just a second. I'm going to address it again. But sometimes we read into this like, oh, he got her, he burned her, boom, you know, Jesus dropped the mic or something. I don't think his attitude was like that. I think he was revealing what her past was, but I don't think he was condemning her because we see a different Jesus in the Gospel of John as well as Mark and Matthew and Luke. Uh, We look at this and we think that he's, you know, somehow getting her, burning her or something. I think he's merely exposing the pain that she's had in her life. And he wanted the man that she's with. And if she's with a man, you know, it's like that's her husband, even though they're not technically married. But he wanted the family to experience life, eternal life. So I'll come back to this in a moment and and think about her story a little bit more. But he doesn't say anything more than what's going on in her life. And sometimes we read into this that, you know, oh man, she, she really messed up. You know, he, he got her. No, he's talking to her about living water and he's given her a chance and he doesn't say any more about her circumstances than this. But these were her circumstances. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she knows he's a prophet because he was able to say what was going on in her life. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, the Spirit of God doesn't quite work like that anymore. He convicts us, which means he convinces us, the Spirit of God does, of what needs to go right in our life. But sometimes you or I can both be afraid thinking that, you know, another Spirit-filled believer, another word-reading disciple of the Lord is just going to look at us and realize everything that's wrong with us. But God sees us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about our, our, the wrongs that we've done and the things that we need to grow in, the Spirit is, is, is working on us that we would yield, that we would surrender, that we would let that purifying, refreshing, cleansing uh, flow of eternal life, which is the Spirit of God, flow into us and flow through us, that we'd be everything that God wants us to be. But God's not about condemning us. Uh, Romans 8 1 there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus God isn't a condemning God he isn't trying to push you down with his thumb or make you feel small or rub your nose in it no God's wanting to liberate you he wanted to liberate her from these experiences that she's had okay and and let all this living water flow through her life the spirit of God is the living water she knows he's a prophet Uh, let's go on, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. So this is her. She's saying, now our fathers, the Samaritans, they worship on Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she's exposed, and yet she begins to enter into theological debate. She's saying, it's this mountain here, you know. She kind of goes to the next thing that her mind comes up with, and sometimes when we're confronted with reality, when we're confronted with our woundedness, when there's an offer of greater life that Jesus puts out there, sometimes we just talk church. Sometimes we just talk about, like, uh, 
stupid stuff, okay, that doesn't get to the heart of the matter of life change. And so she starts talking about this debate of, of the Samaritans versus the Jews. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Let me kind of apply it in this way. It's almost like sometimes as Protestants we might go after Catholics, or Catholics might say, you Protestants don't get it. Or, you know, uh, if we're more charismatic, we'll say, let's talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And people who haven't, you know, experienced or had as much of that say, no, you err into emotionalism. And uh, people who are for women in ministry say this, and people who are against it say, no, not that. Or, you know, there's all these different debates where we start talking church rather than realizing that God is wanting us to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not about these theological debates. Jesus says, now the Jews got it right, but I'm telling you, there's coming a time where people are just going to be worshiping in the spirit and in truth, wherever they're at. They're going to be living God's purposes for them. They're going to be released. They're going to be free. They're going to be full of love. They're going to be fully human. They're going to just be amazingly, beautifully experiencing my grace everywhere. So let's not make it about these theological points. But Jesus does say, but Jerusalem's the place, and it always has been, where the worship was focused. So he is a God of truth, but he's also a God of grace. And he focuses in on this woman. He's wanting to bring it back to relationship. So uh, teaching point, Mark, make it about relationship. Make it about being graceful to the people in your life and in my life, not about the finer, prickly, theological points, okay? Um, They say that porcupines have many fine points about them, but you don't want to cuddle up you know, next to them. God, God's a God who chose to be close to us, and so he deals with her in relationship, in grace. Do you know what I'm saying? You get what I'm after here today? Whatever it is that you're struggling with, God understands, and God is a God of grace. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. So it's interesting because Jesus is bringing it back to the main thing that he wants to talk about. And somehow it enters into her mind about Messiah, that they also, these Samaritans, to the north of Jerusalem, they also had an expectation of Messiah showing up. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, he's saying, guess what? I am the Messiah. Now, elsewhere, when he heals people, when they want to make him king, when all these other things go around, he says, shh, be quiet. I don't want you spreading this word everywhere, which is kind of funny in the Gospels. If you read it, you're like, why Why did he not want them promoting it? It could have been, you know, many people theorize that he didn't want things getting out of control. It was like he was there to teach that the gospel had come. He, he was there to get ready to lay down his life at Calvary. 
He was there to do many things, and it would have gotten off course if, if, if it would have become a circus. And yet it became a circus anyways because people couldn't keep their mouths shut, even though Jesus was telling them to keep their mouths shut. Jesus gave his disciples different instructions after his resurrection. He said, go tell everybody, okay? Don't keep it quiet. You can now openly celebrate and tell everybody wherever you're at for all history. And so for 2,000 years, we've been doing that. We've been sharing the good news with our lips. We've been saying Maranatha with our mouth, come Lord Jesus, and hallelujah from our heart, which means praise the Lord. We've been set free. And it's for freedom's sake. It says in Galatians that we have been set free. Some people in our world will say, Jesus never said that he was the Messiah. You know, he was a good teacher and he performed miracles, but he never said it. Oh, yes, he did. He told this woman directly. He had his own purposes for doing it that I don't fully understand. But he told her directly, I'm the Christ. And so her response just then as disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? So they wouldn't have done this, and we wouldn't have done it if we would have grown up in their culture. Wouldn't have been shooting the breeze with a woman at the well. Wouldn't have been talking to a Samaritan, even if it was a man. And they didn't say, why are you talking with her? Uh, why, by the way? Because he's the rabbi, okay? He's the, he's the guy who's, who they're, they're following. They're astonished by his actions. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then more of the story happens, but in verse 39, I'm going to wrap it up here. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, he told me all that I ever did. And it's, it tells us in the story, if you read those verses I skipped, that other people asked Jesus, other Samaritans began interacting with him, and because of his answers to them on different things, they also believed. And he stuck around for two days that it seemed like he wasn't planning on sticking around in order to, uh, to tell people about this wonderful grace. So the woman comes to the well at noon. It was the wrong time to come to the well. Other women in the community would have come, and this was characteristically... In that day, women's work to do the water fetching. That's why it's unusual in the Gospels when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and he says that you'll see a man fetching some water and you need to go interact and you know, get the colt and, and set, up, you know, set up dinner for, for the uh, for the Passover meal, I th it might have been the Passover meal, but it was that last week. Regardless, that's why it would have caught everybody's attention. What a man fetching water! That would have been out of out of the ordinary. This woman is not coming in the cooler day, the morning or the evening. They would have naturally come when it was cooler in the day. Uh, being a little closer to the equator, it's hot at noon here but yet you get closer to the equator like Israel is, it's even hotter. You know, it's the very, the heat of the day uh, there in Israel. Jesus is taking a rest because he's exhausted from the heat, but this woman is out fetching the water at the wrong time. Normally, women of the village would even come together and socialize as they were getting the water. And so she's not part of a group of women. 
She's coming at a time when nobody would be there, which probably tells you that she is an outsider from the community where she lives because she's getting water by herself and it's at the hot time of the day, which means that the other people in the community probably didn't approve of her uh, living with the guy that she's living with that isn't her husband, and uh, she's alone. She's an outcast for various reasons. Now, she's had five husbands. She's with a man who's not her husband. And a lot of times people look at this, and, and it was very unlike how our culture has become. The expectations were very high in Jewish culture that, you know, you, you'd live life in a certain way and that you'd get married and then you'd live with the person and so forth and so on. And a lot of times we come to this passage and we say this woman had, you know, these, she was living an immoral life, um, which is the case. But in that culture, between men or women, who had all of the power? Men had all of the power. And so the life situation, the hand of cards that she's dealt might not entirely be all of her fault because the men would do this. They, the Jews actually had a debate that if the woman burned the toast, they said, you know, in the Jewish writings, that if the woman didn't prepare a meal right, you know, that was that grounds for divorce. Well, a certain camp of them thought it was right and that you could do something for just those grounds and get a divorce and go on and get your next woman. And many of the Jewish men would do this. They would just cycle through women, and yes, they would marry them, but Jesus called this cycling through women and the issuing of divorces for no good reason. He referred to it as adultery. And he said the only good reason for a divorce would be sexual immorality, that the sexual union has been betrayed, it's been broken. And so that's your, your grounds. And he said that all this divorce stuff was because Moses allowed them to issue certificates of divorce because of the hardness of the heart. And so men's heart are hard and women's heart are hard, right? We have this heart sin problem. The scripture doesn't tell us anything about the men in her life and how they treated her, okay? I might have told you before that my uncle said that my aunt worshipped him as a god when they were first married because every meal was a burnt offering. <laughs> now, we don't know what the dynamic was with this woman and her, her five husbands, okay? We don't know if she was abused. We don't know if she was just cast to the side. I kind of think she was, that it was kind of like these men had, were done with her and finished, and she didn't have a role, and maybe she didn't think a whole lot of herself, and maybe she put up with the verbal. Uh, we don't know, and Jesus doesn't tell us about it. The Scripture doesn't tell us about it. The reason why this story is there in the Scriptures is because she experienced life change, and her status in the community, her status as a woman, her status as a Samaritan, her history, you know, whatever it is, the tattoos that she had, you know, all the different things, the piercings, the color of her hair, the, the drugs that she had abused, whatever it was. And I'm throwing a lot in there, okay? But to make a point, that none of that stood in the way of her encountering Jesus. And Jesus giving her the special gift of revealing himself as just outright, plainly, I'm Messiah. And now you can have this living water if you want it. Now, we get thirsty, right? And there's nothing that you want like a drink of cold water when we need it. 
and without water, actually, our brains don't operate right. As we get older in life, your mechanism biologically that says you need more water, you need to hydrate your body more, it actually goes down as we get older, and so we need to hydrate ourselves. Water is life. And so by Jesus saying, I'm going to give you living water, leaping water, springing water inside you that you'll never thirst anymore. He's telling her eternal life and even equated it to eternal life. In John chapter 7, Jesus later is at a feast in Jerusalem and he says this about this water. It says, on the day of the feast, John 737, uh, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, which people would have thought was kind of weird, okay? But he cried out to everybody. He shouts this out. He says, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John 7, 39, the next verse says this. John's given us a little explanation. Now this he said about the Spirit. The Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the living water is the Spirit of God. And if you believe in Jesus, that he died, that he rose again, that he's taken your sins on the cross, and that you're now a child of God, if you believe that, you have living water inside of you that provides for your thirsts for life to satisfy you. The Spirit of God is what does this. We are created with this deep need for to be refreshed, to be revitalized, to be cleansed. And the only way that we get it is by the Spirit of God. And so you might say, well, Mark, I don't f- I'm thirsty still, and yet I believe. I, I don't know why. I, I, I feel these feelings that I have or have these needs that I have. How can I get more of that, that living water in my life? I believe there's two avenues, maybe more, but, but two primary ones. The Bible says that you have not because you ask not. Ask the Holy Spirit once again today. Say, Lord, fill me up to overflowing. Make my cup overflow, as David said in Psalm 23, so that I'll have enough to meet my needs and be a blessing to other people. May, may that, you know, ask for it. That's prayer. The other thing is that the Bible itself talks in Ephesians 5, about how Jesus uh, washes us with the water of the word. In, in Ephesians 5, it says this, that Christ might sanctify her, the bride, the, the church, which is what we are, having cleansed her, which is us, by the washing of water with the word. If you need a brainwashing, read the Bible. If you need a heart washing, if you need a soul cleansing, if you need refreshment, if you need whatever it is, you get the mind of Christ from this word, the Bible. You can have it on your tablet or your phone or whatever it is, but there's nothing that does the job that fills us with the Spirit like going to the Word. Why? Because the apostle said that he, the Holy Spirit, inspired this Word. So you go to the Spirit-inspired Word to receive the mind of Christ, to refresh your soul, and it's washing yourself. It's Christ that's doing it because we get the mind of Christ, and He's the, the living Word. This is the written Word. But you get what I'm saying. If you need more in your life, you drink of it here. 
You get more of this. You study it. You memorize it. You read it. You immerse yourself in it. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, why is it that we just have this incredible need in our life to be filled up with this? Because, you know, we've only had the Bible in print in our language for just a few centuries, and yet Jesus was 2,000 years ago, right? And sometimes I think, why is it that we need this so bad? What did Christians do, the first Christians, you know, 2,000 years ago and 1,900 years ago? Well, let's, let's go back. Let's say we live in the year 500, okay? It's been 500 years or 400 and some years since Jesus died. They had the Bible. They would gather together like we do. They would read from it on, on Sunday, and they would worship, and they would, you know, sing, and they would do different things in their own culture, which might have been Roman culture, European culture, Greek culture in modern-day Turkey, other places where the gospel took root, North Africa. And they didn't have so many other things that were programming their minds through the rest of the week. And even when they would gather at other times during the week, they would also, they'd remind each other about the word. You know, they had maybe one copy that they would, you know, share. But we have so many things on TV, on internet, on Instagram, on Facebook, on, you know, telephones and texts and radio and all these different sources. It's because we have a flood of all these other things that drain us and make us thirsty that that's why we need the word so much. That's why we need to encourage one another. That's why just getting in the Word and reading it has such an impact on the life of the American Christian. Show me a weak Christian, and it could be myself, and I'll show you myself that hasn't been in the Word. But show me a strong Christian, and I'll show you a Christian that's been in the Word that's been reading it. When I first got saved, I remember reading through this thing, not this one, but, but a Bible. It, it really doesn't matter which one or, or what translation you get. You want to get, you know, if it's NIV or New King James or the English Standard, the Quest Bible, or it, do, it really doesn't matter. There's all kinds of great, great ones out there. You know, the, the Passion Translations, a new great thing of the New Testament, the Message, all these different things. You just get into it, and it feeds you. And I remember never reading the words before of the New Testament and reading it and just being like, wow, this is amazing what this thing says, you know, and how it impacts the life of the believer. So I want to encourage you, get in the word. Because man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the Bible itself talks about how you get in the word, and that's how you experience tram- transformation. That's how you receive this living water. When you receive, oh, God loves me so much, and, and I can't go wrong with him. He, we're, we're secure in that. So we're going to close with a song this morning, and, uh, and, and I want to pray for you and allow this opportunity for prayer. But uh, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the living water that you make available in our life. And help us not overcomplicate this. Help us to realize that living life in you is just as refreshing and we need just as much of you as we need water for our bodies. We need the Spirit of God continually in our life. And the only source for the Spirit of God is Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ within us that is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of holiness. So we worship you and we thank you and, and we we 
we tap into you once again and we thank you, Father, for the many gifts that we enjoy in this life. May we never be filled with just the things of this life and forget that we, our spirit has needs, our mind has needs to be fed and to be refreshed and cleansed and that there's, there's an there's a avenue for it, there's a well. His name is Jesus and he gives us living water. So we honor you, we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus.